Welcome back to week nine of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week's book is Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, published in 1964 and interestingly banned by some schools and libraries almost immediately. I first read Harriet the Spy sometime in early 1973. I think my stepmother and I were visiting a small bookshop in Georgetown, one of those shops with dusty wooden floors and shelves, possibly two ground floor spaces linked through crooked doorways, small rooms packed with hardbacks and an absorbing children's section. Given my enjoyment of adventure stories, of course I was going to be intrigued by a book called Harriet the Spy, with a cover depicting a small girl with a blonde bob in jeans, glasses and a sweatshirt, looking, apart from the blonde hair, just like me. I know I read it fast, and then I read it again, and again, and again. The story is simple. Set in 1960s New York, Harriet, 11 years old, is the only child of a father who works in some unnamed but stressful job in television, where the majority of his interactions are with finks and superfinks. Her mother doesn't have a formal job but is clearly very busy, although again doing what is not clear. The family are obviously wealthy, they have a cook, and Harriet has a nanny, old golly. She goes to a school which takes boys up to sixth grade, and after that it is girls only. Her two best friends are Sport, the son of a writer deserted by his wife and wrestling to produce a novel, and Janie, a rather ferocious child, determined to become a scientist, despite coming from a very conventional family. From the opening pages when Harriet is playing Town with Sport, I knew I was in the company of my doppelganger. Town is Harriet's imaginary world, played in the yard, creating a community out of the tree roots and twigs, populated with around 25 families, otherwise it gets confusing, with at least one lawyer, a doctor, shopkeepers, a police officer, a mini soap opera she runs in her head and then writes down in her ever-present notebook. I might have been eight rather than eleven. I might have been at boarding school instead of a New York brownstone. But I, too, had notebooks, wanted to be a writer, and was able to summon easily whole complex worlds of interrelating characters. And when it came to school, I, too, was surrounded by vacant girls keen to emulate the manners and morals of their tribe, a tribe I did not fully understand, even though technically I too was a nice upper-middle-class child. Harriet's tale is not one of implausible adventures involving teams of 12-year-old detectives catching heavily accented and bearded foreign fellows. It is an account of Harriet's own cataclysmic fall from grace within her real complex world. The first part of the book establishes Harriet's relationships and routines. Old Golly is the central adult in her world, a mysterious, tweed-swathed reader who quotes Dostoevsky and takes Harriet and Sport to visit her ageing, not-very-bright mother far from Manhattan. Harriet is now on her 15th notebook, full of notes on the people she sees on the subway, as well as reflections about her day and her encounters with her peers, and those she meets. Harriet's spying was inspirational to a small nine-year-old. She gets back from school every day, changes into her spy clothes, 
Old jeans, an old navy hoodie, her blue sneakers with holes over the toes and a glasses frame with no lenses, then heads out into the neighbourhood on her fixed route. She sneaks into the dumbwaiter at the home of divorcee Agatha Plummer, who lives in bed and spends all day on the phone. She visits Sport's apartment. She lurks at the back of the DeSantis grocery store with a delivery boy, Joe Curry, who steals from the store and gives the food to four hungry kids. She uses a skylight to keep an eye on Harrison Withers, who keeps 25 cats, and finally observes the Robinsons, a couple who never do anything other than occasionally buy things and show them off to other people, stunning Harriet, because unless there is someone with them, they sit in silence, not even reading. At the time of my reading, I was visiting my father and stepmother in Washington. They lived in a terrace of around 10 townhouses overlooking Rock Creek Park. At the front, overlooking Rock Creek Parkway, was a sloping area leading down to the car parking area with bushes, flower beds and a couple of magnolia trees. All the houses had gardens leading onto an alleyway at the back with more parking and places to store trash cans. Henry Kissinger lived at one end of the terrace and by the time I came back for the Christmas holidays in December 1973, he had been appointed Nixon's Secretary of State. This meant a secret service detail keeping the houses under surveillance night and day. It did not occur to me when I was setting up my own spy route in emulation of Harriet that it might cause some confusion to Kissinger's bodyguard. Inevitably, one day, I was hauled out of a bush, or it might have been one of the magnolia trees, down the pathway to our house. My father, enjoying a weekend lion, came downstairs a bit befuddled and was told to prevent my spying activities. But it was not simply the spying that made me feel for the first time that my own experiences were captured in a story. As a bookish only child, I too shared Harriet's loneliness, which deepens when Old Golly leaves in a scene which I had deliberately submerged in my memory because it is so sad and so sudden. And then the great catastrophe occurs. Harriet's notebook falls into the hands of her peers. They read it, they share it, they read it aloud, and she becomes completely ostracised by even her best friends, Sport and Jane. Things do work out eventually. Things do not go back to how they were. They cannot do that. Harriet suffers. Her parents take her to a psychiatrist. She continues to spy on her peers as they set up the Spy Catchers Club. She has terrible nightmares. But it is her spy route that saves her. For as she experiences her nadir, so do some of those on her spy route. Joe Curry gets fired. Um, and the most vulnerable and the most damaged, Harrison Withers, has his home visited by the health department and they remove all 25 of his cats. The sight of him distraught in the empty f apartment grieves Harriet. But later, as she herself is working through the loss of her friends, she spies him, looking happy once again, eating a tuna sandwich, drinking coke and working at making bird cages. And then, from the kitchen, a small kitten appears and saunters across the room, 
and Harriet writes in her notebook, They ain't going to change Harrison Withers. As a teacher, I fight hard against the idea that a rational measure for a book is the relatability of characters. I don't believe in characters being relatable. I suspect my love for Harriet lies at the heart of this. I didn't relate to Harriet. Harriet and I were one. We were the same. You don't relate to yourself. You are yourself. When a book truly captures you, it becomes embedded in you. As I have done for all the books I've discussed so far, I reread Harriet the Spy. But apart from erasing the almighty row that leads Old Golly to leave the Welsh family, it was, like Ballet Shoes, a book that I still know almost by heart 50 years on. This book is an inextricable element, a key piece of the puzzle that made me who I am. And if you know any solitary, bookish children of around eight or nine, I am not entirely sure that I would recommend that you give them a copy of this book, because chances are, like some alien Doctor Who creature, it will inhabit and settle in that child and turn them into a notebook-wielding observer of all human life. Harriet the Spy taught me to look, to observe, to watch, to notice, to see. And rereading it reminded me just how important that is. Harriet learns not simply to write down what she sees, but that essential gift of the best humans. To walk in the shoes of others, to understand that we are not the centre of the world, not even the centre of our own world. This was the book that first showed me, as Mary Oliver puts it in her magnificent poem, Wild Geese, that... Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Join me next week for a look at the last book of my first decade, Elizabeth Googe's The Little White Horse, Apparently, one of J.K. Rowling's favourites as a child as well. Thank you.